Let me encourage you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 22. Well, this is it. This is the last chapter and verses of Revelation, which means that this is our last sermon series, which means we are done. And all God's people said, hey, don't be too excited. No, I'm kidding. You know, I'm a little relieved, and and I don't want you to get me wrong. I've really enjoyed this series. I've grown a lot. I've been encouraged by it. I'm really surprised how applicable uh, the book of Revelation's been. But let me tell you, uh, I have not studied this hard in a long time. Like, there are days where my head, my brain hurt. You ever had brain hurt? Like, I would just come home from the office. My wife would say, how was your day? Oh, I don't want to talk about it. It's it's, uh, death and judgment and demon locusts and don't get me started on those birds oh my goodness yeah so you know I'm, I'm glad God gave us this book I'm very glad to see the end but but how do you end a book like this I mean after all the incredible things we've seen and learned how do you wrap it all up there are some stories that have a really nice neat and tidy ending you, the credits roll and you feel satisfied because you know all the answers revelation is not that way okay Sure, seeing the new heavens and new earth, knowing we're going to be with Jesus forever, that's satisfying. But there are a lot of things that simply weren't answered. It's kind of like that movie or book where you you get to the end, you turn the last page, and you think, wait, hang on, there's got to be more to it. That's it? They aren't going to explain this or tie up that loose end? I try to imagine the first century Christians, the very first Christians who ever heard Revelation. You know, typically these New Testament letters would be sent out to churches and they would gather like we've done and they would read the whole letter to the church. I try to imagine, can you imagine sitting in church and hearing for the very first time the book of Revelation read from start to finish? I would have been the guy in the back raising his hand and saying, "Uh, I have some questions. Um, Could you tell me a little more about that that, that beast that's going to kill all of us? Could you kind of clarify that for me? Like, we all want more answers about what the end holds for us, but we got to remember, Scripture is sufficient. God's Word is sufficient. He's told us everything we need to know, and what He hasn't told us, well, we don't need to know it. And as I said from the beginning, Revelation was not written to give us all the answers. It was not written to tell us exactly when and how Jesus would come back, and it wasn't written to be cracked like a code or laid out in a calendar. Revelation was actually written to be obeyed. John said this in the very beginning in chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 3. He said, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is what we've done. We've read it aloud. You've heard it, hopefully. And now we must Keep it. So so let's just read the ending of this great book, and then I want to give you three things that we can take away from it. Look with me at Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 through 21. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. 
I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. For the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. As the letter closes out, John gives us a few closing thoughts from the angel, a few closing thoughts from Jesus, and a few more from himself. And it's a little scattered, it feels like, but what we see when we boil it all down is three major takeaways, three things that we can walk away with as believers in light of this revelation. Here's the first. Number one, this could happen to me. Yeah, that's the first thing we need to take away from Revelation as a whole. This could happen in our lifetimes. We could be the people written about in this book. And this is what John emphasizes as he closes out the letter. Uh, first off, he wants the reader to make sure they know this will happen. He wants us to know this is real. He's not just making this stuff up. Look again at verse 6. He says, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. So John is anticipating the questions and concerns that may come from this letter. Like I said, I am quite certain that once Revelation was read, some hands went up with questions. Maybe some people thought, ma'am. John has really lost it. I mean, he has been on that island of Patmos in exile for so long. He's, he's going a little crazy, right? His gospel and those other three letters, man, that was good stuff. But this is just too far, John. So John goes to great length to tell us that this is true. You, you can trust it. Why? Because John says, this is not my revelation. This is not me. I'm just the guy taking notes. That's why the very first words of the book in Revelation 1.1 are the revelation of Jesus Christ. This comes from Jesus, and it's given through angels to John for the people. I think this is also why John tells us that he fell down and worshiped an angel. He's saying, hey, man, I was just as blown away as you are. I accidentally fell down and worshiped an angel. 
<laughs> and the angel said to him, he said, hey, don't worship me. Worship God. Just reaffirming the fact that this is from God. Then John emphasizes even more the seriousness of this book. Look at verses 18 and 19. He says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Why does John give such a strong warning about this book? I remember as a kid, uh, a friend, he actually took me to the end of Revelation. He, he showed me this verse and he told me, he said, this is why you should never write in your Bible. Because if you do... Man, these plagues, you were toast. And so I was so nervous about using highlighters or pens or anything. I thought, you know, this was going to happen to me. I would not want to mark in my Bible. But obviously that is not the idea here, okay? It's, it's okay to write in your Bible, to mark it up and to use highlighters. But what John's doing is he's making sure that we take this seriously. Like even though there's some hard stuff and some confusing things, he wants to make sure we don't change the message and try to make it sound better. Because, again, the point is that we understand this is real. This is true. This will happen. And it could happen to you. I remember as a kid in, in school, we used to have uh, fire drills and tornado drills. Y'all remember that? And as little kids, we'd always ask the teachers when the alarms were going off, we'd say, hey, is this, is this a drill or is this real? And our teacher would always reassure us. She'd say, don't worry. This is just a drill. This is just a drill. There's not a real fire. Until one day, there was a real fire. Uh, in my elementary school, we actually had a small fire in our kitchen cafeteria. And the teacher, she, she said to us, she said, guys, this is real. And the fire trucks came, and everybody was crying, and parents were coming to pick up their kids. And, and thankfully, it, it didn't end up being anything major. There wasn't much damage. But it reaffirmed for us the idea that a fire really could happen. <laughs> we needed to be prepared. That's the idea here in Revelation. Except this isn't just it could happen this is it will happen this will happen and this could happen to me that's why jesus says three times in this passage look do you see the red letters in your bible he says three times i am coming soon he really wants us to get the urgency of this message but hang on a second preacher man wasn't this written two thousand years ago I mean, how soon is soon? Like, I get that one day this will happen, but if it, happen, it, haven't, if it hasn't happened in the past 2,000 years, is it really going to happen in our lifetimes? It's a good question. I think a lot of us subconsciously think that way. Like, yeah, Revelation is true. It's going to happen, but it won't happen to me. That's still kind of a ways down the road. We don't need to worry about that. Jesus and, and John, they just must have been a little confused about the timing of everything. Is that true? Were they confused? Why did Jesus say he was coming soon if he hasn't in 2,000 years? Well, it should be obvious that the word soon does not mean immediately. That word soon, literally, what it means is without delay. It means that God's plan is moving forward just as he wrote it, and nothing is going to slow down or delay the return of Christ. When it's going to happen, it's going to happen. In 2 Peter 3, Peter actually speaks to this exact issue of when Jesus will, will return. Look at this in 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 4. 
He said, know this, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You see that? There's people scoffing. They're laughing at Christians. They're saying, hey, look, he's not here. He said he was coming. What happened? This is how Peter responds a few verses later, verses 8 through 10. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In verse 10, he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Isn't that interesting? Peter tells us, he says, hey, God's time is not our time. God is eternal. He's outside of our time constraints. 1,000 years is like one day to him. One day to him is like 1,000 years. And then he tells us that there is going to be a little bit of a, a delay in our eyes. Why? Is God being slow? No, he's not being slow. He's being patient so people can repent. But then he says the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Jesus said that himself in Luke 12, 40. He said, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. When Jesus returns, we will not expect it. So we don't know when Christ will return. Even Jesus himself, when he was on the earth, said he didn't know when he was coming back. But here's the key. We need to be ready. This could happen to us. Jesus is coming soon. It may not be immediately this week or this year, but we are living in the period of time where there will be no delay. And Jesus wants us to be ready for that. So let me ask you, do you really believe that this could happen to you? I mean, do you honestly believe that Jesus could come back in your lifetime? That you could face the, the kind of persecution and challenge we see in this book? That you could stand before God in judgment this year? That's our first takeaway from Revelation. This could happen to me. Here's the second. Number two, live like it already has. Look with me again at verse 7. It says, Jesus says, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Here we see again, just as we did at the beginning, that this revelation is for keeping. It's meant to be obeyed. This book was written to tell us how to live. Yet most people don't think about it this way. It's a tragedy, really, that people have so abused Revelation that it's become a book for puffing yourself up with pride and showing people how smart you are and how deep you are. It's become a book of speculative nonsense used to divide Christians and churches over third-level issues. And worst of all, it's become a tool to make money off people's fears. No. This book was written to be obeyed. Not just studied and analyzed sitting in Sunday school or in a classroom, but it's meant to be lived out Monday to Saturday in your everyday life. This was not written for scholars like a textbook or movie producers like a script, but it was written for you like a playbook to tell us how to live. So that means if we read this book and it does not change how we live our lives, we miss the whole point. We missed it. This book's filled with commands. We saw that at the beginning with the seven letters. They were commands to fight off sin, to love one another, to persevere through difficulty and suffering. But what are the commands of all these crazy visions? I mean, how do we obey 
those chapters. Well, the point is that we should live like this will happen. We should be getting ready and preparing ourselves for the return of Christ. But it's more than that. As our second takeaway says, we should live like this has already happened. What do you mean by that? What, that sounds weird. Well, why don't you think about this? This is amazing. When we think about the coming kingdom, the future reign of Christ, for those who know Jesus, this is true now. We are citizens of heaven now. We're part of his kingdom now. We're experiencing the reign of Jesus now. And that's what John told us at the very beginning of the book. We recited every Sunday morning. Jeremy read it. Revelation 1.5, he said, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Did you see that? He doesn't say will make us a kingdom one day. No, he said he has made us a kingdom now. We are a kingdom of priests now because we live in the kingdom now. Now jump back with me to the end of the book, Revelation twenty-two sixteen. Jesus speaks again. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I'm the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And we've talked about this language before. It's Old Testament language, which speaks of Jesus being the true coming king and being preeminent as the bright and morning star. So what we see is that Jesus is king now. He is Lord of Lords now. When he returns, he will not become something that he's not. Rather, he will reign as the king he already is. And we then should live out who we already are. Let me explain it like this. I told you a few weeks ago I played soccer back in high school. And I remember my freshman year uh, going out for tryouts. Man, I was so nervous. And the best guy on the team, he was a senior. He'd been playing soccer a long time. He was big. He was strong. He was fast. And during tryouts, man, he just dominated everyone. And I'm kind of thinking like, man, you know you're going to be on the team. <laughs> you help me out a little bit. I don't know if I'm going to make it. And it didn't cause him to goof off or to hang back or, or to take it easy, even though he knew he was going to be a starter, even though he knew he was going to be on the team. He knew he was the best player. No. He went out and dominated. It was the same way in practice. He didn't need to prove anything. He wasn't going to lose his starting spot, but yet he never took it easy. He was the best player, and he played in light of who he was. This is what it means to live like it's already happened. If you are in Christ, you are already on the team. When the roster is posted, your name will be in the Lamb's Book of Life. Your place in the kingdom of God is secure but this is not a time to, t to relax or take it easy or lollygag. This is a time to live out who you are in Christ. So live like Jesus is already the king of kings because he is the king of your life. Live like Jesus has already come back because he has already come to live inside of you. Live like judgment has already happened because at judgment it's already been nailed to the cross for you. Live like heaven is already here now because we are ambassadors and citizens of the new Jerusalem. So what does this look like in your life? I mean, now that you've heard this, this book, Revelation, what would it look like for you to live like it's already happened? And think about it. How should you as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven treat your spouse and your kids and your family? How should a servant of the King Jesus 
spend their money in their free time? What priorities, what kind of goals, what kind of life dreams should an ambassador of Jesus Christ have? Man, we are waiting on the return of Christ, but we are not bored. We're not sitting in the waiting room. We're not idle. We're not jobless. We have a calling to make disciples of all nations, and reading Revelation should give us a renewed focus on that call to make it happen now. So this could happen to me. Live like it already has. And here's the third and last takeaway. It's this. Fear not. We said from the very beginning that this is the central message of this book. It's fear not. And think of all the ways we've seen that message play out from week to week to week. We saw that we, saw that we can fear not because Jesus holds the seven churches in his hand. Fear not because God is on his throne. Fear not because Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. Fear not because God will judge the enemies of the church. Fear not because you have been sealed and will be protected. Fear not because we will have a strong witness in the end times. Fear not because Satan and the Antichrist will be defeated. Fear not because Babylon will fall. Fear not because Christ is coming and we will reign with him for a thousand years. And fear not because we will be with him forever in the new heaven having a new earth and here in the last chapter it's fear not because Jesus is coming soon the thought of Christ returning should bring us great peace and comfort we should desire it it should eliminate all fear but is that the case it's my experience that for many Christians the thought of Jesus coming back is kind of scary I've felt that way before. And people feel that way for a variety of reasons, but one of the biggest reasons I think Christians fear Jesus coming back is because they're afraid he'll be disappointed in them. They feel like they haven't done enough or maybe they've sinned too much so Jesus may reject them or they read about all the ways Jesus is going to judge the world and they think, man, what if that happens to me? What if I don't make it? Look, I've told you before, some of the stuff in this book is scary. We fear the unknown and talk about unknown. It's right here. I think it's understandable to be a little unnerved when we think about everything we know coming undone. So there's going to be a little fear. But notice how John responds to the thought of Jesus coming soon. John ends the whole letter, look at this, with a simple prayer. He says, come, Lord Jesus. John wants Jesus to return right then. He's like, hey, man, let's get this show on the road. And I have a hard time with that because you're telling me that after all John just saw, his response is not, God, please don't let this happen in my lifetime. <laughs> like, please let me be long gone before you do any of this stuff. No. He wants it to happen now. Why? Because John knows that Jesus coming back will be the single greatest thing to ever happen. And let me say that again. For those in Christ, Jesus coming back will be the single greatest thing to ever happen. We have no reason to fear that day. Because for those of us who have trusted Jesus, he will not come in anger or condemnation. He will not be disappointed in you. He won't have a long list of all the things you messed up. 
He won't take back his promise to save you. He won't change his mind. No, when Jesus comes back, he's coming to rescue you, to love you, to make you his forever. And all will be right again. All the things we worry about will be gone. I told you earlier, I'm a worrier. I tend to be a fearful, tightly wound person. Like I think out the worst case scenarios in my head and I convince myself it's going to happen and I just panic, right? What about you? What do you fear? What do you worry about? Is it health concerns? Money? Your family? Your kids? Your job? The state of our country and world? What people think about you? The future unknown or past regrets? Dying? Growing old? What is it? Man, all of these things that worry us, all of these things that keep us awake at night or cause us to shrink back and be paralyzed in fear, not a single fear will remain when Jesus comes back. Like the moment we see Jesus, there will be no more what-ifs. There will be no more doubts, no more unknowns, no more overthinking, only perfect peace and only perfect joy and perfect everything. And here's the big kicker. If you know Jesus, you can experience this now. You can fear not right now. Did you know that's the single most common command in the entire Bible? It's fear not. Why? Because God knows we are scared people. And this can be true for you. How? How how can I do it? How can I learn to fear not when there's this going on in my life and this unexpected issue that came on? There's just so much going on. How can I do it? Here's how. It's really easy to say, but it's really hard to do sometimes. It's this one word, trust. Trust in Jesus. Take your heart and your mind and place it on Jesus. He's coming back for you. This will happen, and it will happen soon, and nothing can change this fact. That means, as a follower of Jesus, in a sense, you are invincible. Think about it. There's not a single thing you fear that can change Jesus' plan for you. You can't even design a situation in your imagination that could change the plan of Jesus. Not even dying. If you drop dead right after church today, not even that can change what Christ has for you. He's coming back. And he's coming back soon. And it will be the greatest thing to ever happen. But not for everyone. And this is the hard part. There were two verses tucked in there in the middle that tell us there is a reason for some people to fear the return of Christ. Look at chapter 22, verses 14 and 15. It says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. The only people who will rejoice at the return of Christ will be those who have washed their robes white. Let me tell you, there was a time in my life where my robes were filthy. It was covered in the sinful things that I have done. I was one of those dogs, those idolaters, those people that we see here standing outside. 
And I tried to wash my robe. I tried everything I could do to clean it up and to scrub off the filth, but I just seemed to make it worse until I met Jesus. And he took my robe and he washed it in his own blood. He died in my place, taking my sin and filth on himself. And he gave me his perfect righteousness. And now my robe is spotless. My robe is perfectly white. There's not a single stain on it. And it's not because of anything I've done. It's not because I grew up in church. It's not because I have a Christian family. It's not because I'm a pastor. It's not because I read my Bible. It's not because I pray. It's not any good thing I've done. It's not because of me, but it's all because of Jesus. That's it. So what about you? Have you washed your robe? Have you given your life to Jesus? Man, you can do that today if you'll just come. There's no other requirement. There's no list of rules. It's just come. And if you do, this is going to make sense, and you're going to be able to say with me, with John himself, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's go to him in prayer.